Hello everybody and welcome to the 167th edition of the Frank and Stan chat and I have to say there are some sort of weeks where you know I'm always excited about doing these uh, chats but um, we don't always have such eminent guests so uh, I'm delighted to say that Professor Andy Hargreaves is joining us from Canada. Whereabouts in Canada? Just remind me again Andy. I am coming from uh, Ottawa which is uh, as we say here glad to is on the unceded and unsurrendered territory of the Anishinaabe uh, people and uh, th- th- that we pay huge attention after after over a century of disgrace, we're we're really trying to make amends for that now. Brilliant, brilliant. And uh, just for those of you who don't know who Andy is, um, and I have to say, Stan and I know Andy very well. Uh, originally, for me, from reading some very influential sort of books on leadership uh, during my early years as a head teacher. Uh, but Andy's the visiting professor at the University of Ottawa. He's a research professor at the Boston College in the states. He's an elected member of the U.S. National Academy of Education. Um, he's the former advisor in education for the Premier of Ontario. And he's the current advisor, I think, for the First Minister of Scotland. Is that still the case, Andy? Yeah, the, there's a bunch of us. It's not just me. There's, a, there's a bunch of us. And in fact, I have just written a paper called how to, a chapter on how to be an international education advisor. And uh, it's quite short, but, uh, but but one of it is is uh, if you're in policy, you want an advisor, get a bunch, because it, it's up to you to make the decisions, not your advisor. Brilliant. Uh, and he's also published thirty books, eight outstanding writing awards, uh, done addresses all around the world. Um, so, yeah, on, but maybe. actually, one of the key things we want to talk about is this. So this is Andy's new book. Um, well, there's, a, there's a, a newer one coming in two weeks' time, but we'll get onto that in a minute. This is called Leadership from the Middle. And uh, what we want to do today is to spend probably about 20 minutes, if we may, on some of the themes within that book. But before we get there, um, Stan, what's caught your eye this week? Uh, well, this I think this will just fit into the theme of the book nicely. Um, it was um, Nick Gibb. Uh, announcing that, that the free schools program has, has introduced far more autonomy and opportunity for teachers at the very same time that a mat is the staff are going on strike for, basically for autonomy because they've been told they can't place the bin in the classroom anywhere other than they're told they mustn't have posters up they mustn't have lined paper out on the desk now, if, if that's autonomy, I, I've got a misunderstanding somehow of how that works. <laughs> yeah, because that's actually a bit of a theme, isn't it, uh, Andy, in the book? Um, I mean, I'm thinking here about what made you write it? You know, what, what made you think about this? Because actually, I've you know, there's been some discussion about middle leadership, but you're looking yeah. at this in a very different sort of way. So just give us a little bit of background as to your thinking. Sure. Uh, I mean, most of my books in the last few years have come out of collaborative work with the teachers and with what in uh, England and uh, Wales and Scotland we call local authorities. So they, they, uh, our work really follows them rather than us sitting in a room somewhere and asking for a grant and then going out and recruiting participants. And all this began actually in the province of Ontario uh, more than 10 years ago when uh, Ontario is focused on uh, narrowing achievement gaps in uh, literacy and uh, maths. And one of the vulnerable groups was uh, students with or kids with learning disabilities. 
And, and frankly, at the time, a lot of the government direction was fairly top down. It wasn't bad because uh, it had a specific focus right. and uh, it, it had a lot of energy at the top, a lot of funding, resources, uh, materials, uh, support, drive. So if you're focusing on something pretty simple, uh, some some top down is really not not a bad idea. But it found that for kids with uh, for special educational needs, yeah. It's really hard to do from the top down because needs mm. vary so much between kids. Uh, needs vary so much between local authorities. So some of them were rural, some of them were urban, some of them had a lot of uh, immigrants, uh, some of them had uh, strong indigenous populations. So there's variation also in terms of where you are and who your population is. So the government had no idea what to do. So it said, look, we'll let the local authorities decide this. We'll give them some money. And uh, all they have to do is uh, do something about narrowing these gaps, get some equity and uh, figure it out for themselves. So they gave them some money, 72 of them. Uh, we worked with 10 of them and uh, they through working with these 10. Uh, at first, we found out how they were approaching it. And uh, basically their language was they did it by leading from the middle. And the way they described this was, uh, we'll get the districts, the local authorities, to each come up with their own solution that fits their own population. So some used uh, technology, uh, some some used um, all other kinds of uh, uh, strategies, some specifically to do with literacy, some with early intervention. And uh, and then we would sort of network these, we'd network these strategies together so that uh, people could help each other. Uh, they would have to meet every year and talk about what they'd done and what the results were. Even if the results hadn't gone well, that was useful for them and for for other people. And they had a group of uh, like retired, the equivalent in England, Wales and Scotland would be retired directors. And the retired uh, directors really acted as a coordinating unit and said, oh, you know, you're you're working on something over here. Uh, they're doing something over there that might be quite... Why, why don't you connect with them and see how they can support you? So it was uh, focused on equity, focused on outcomes, process varied, highly collaborative, a deliberate architecture to coordinate it, bit of money behind it, but definitely their vocabulary, their idea. Once we started to study that, my colleague Dennis Shirley and I, I went through a second phase working actually collaborative with the districts to, to advance that uh, even further. We then started to look out a bit at other people who were writing about middle leadership. And, and there's lots of people, and lots of people in policy, middle leadership, uh, middle tier, middle level. Yes. And, um, and, and what we were seeing was different from a lot of what other people, other people were writing. They're, they were mainly looking at the middle as, I don't know, something like, 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 like the middle child or middle school or, you know, middle age spread, like something weird that connects the bottom <laughs> to the top and, and, and tries, to, tries to make it so, so it go a bit more effectively, but not really anything of great substance of its own. So a lot of, a lot of the book is not just saying the middle is really important. It's also saying we need to look at the middle in a particular kind of way that is empowering, humanistic, uh, inclusive, and uh, respects autonomy and builds collaboration. Yeah, I, I was struck by the point you've made there. Do, um, I remember about 
nine months ago, uh, I interviewed Michael, Sir Michael Barber, who I think oh. was part of the sort of national literacy programme with the Blair government. And it's just triggered something in my thinking there that he was very proud of this implementation of the national literacy strategy, the national numeracy strategy. I think for Stan and I, I think we were we we rebelled, to be honest. I think we felt as though it was undermining. I think we knew what we were doing and it was sort of undermining us. But it made me think when you were talking there about do you think, though, that in order to um, make those changes, it was necessary for the government to give a sort of framework so that it wasn't actually just a sort of bit of a free-for-all, everybody worked something out for themselves, that they were adapting something that had already been implemented nationally or at least uh, regionally? Well, uh, you know, Michael Barber is a bit of a mixed bag, like most of us, and I have debated him at the National College for uh, School Leadership, which was a bit of an event in all kinds of ways. And, And when I say mixed bag, I mean a genuinely mixed bag. So... Uh, Ontario, in so going back 20 years, but mm. Ontario's model of uh, improving literacy and numeracy and outcomes and inequity uh, was in part inspired by uh, what England had been doing at the time uh, under the advice of, uh, of Sir Michael Barber. What Ontario, advised by Michael Fulham, specifically tried to do was to keep the focus, the direction, or the support, the resources, the materials and the training, but but without the heavy hand of punitive inspection, yes, and um, um, without quite the same smoke and mirrors in terms of uh, the achievement results, which have been heavily criticised as to how authentic or how fake they were. So, in fairness, it, it was inspired. It was a kind of Michael Barber 2.0, I suppose, right, right. In, in, in a lot of ways. In terms of the middle, um, I think uh, I, I, our book is quite explicitly in disagreement with, with Sir Michael Barber, about uh, under his work with McKinsey and uh, what has followed from that, when when he actually talks about about the middle being something we need to build because uh, because of the top down has become too much of a gap between the top and and the bottom, and uh, and the middle for him is a way of uh, another kind of middle networks is actually a way of replacing local authorities and quite explicitly says yeah. uh, one of its purposes is to remove local dissent from uh, government policies and enable government policies to go more swiftly. So call me old fashioned. I'm not about uh, I'm not about removing democracy in order to enhance a top down authoritarianism. And so we have an explicit difference on that. But at the same time, you could say that when you look at England and the work it did for many years, less common now in terms of local authorities working with each other or schools working with each other in local authorities, to take collaborative responsibility mm-hmm. for each other's success. Uh, th- that was inspired, you know, the first place that did that was the London Challenge. And um, that was inspired by Sir Michael Barber. So, you know, most of our leaders are a mixed bag and we have to take the things that they've <laughs> done well and give them due credit for it. And the things we think they've done less well or in the wrong direction, we have to be honest and debate that. Well, I think it was re- just before you come in, so I'll let you come in after this then. But I do remember reading in the section you were you were critical, not critical, but you, you explained the journey that a couple of researchers, Michael Fulham was one, how they actually sort of, 
learnt and sort of oh. didn't undermine themselves, but they were it was just part of the journey of getting a better insight into the impact of some of the work they'd done and how that yeah. had affected their thinking moving forward. Um, yeah, Stan, what were you going to say? I, it's funny you should say, Michael. I was just recalling Michael Fullen coming over to England and, and meeting him and him saying, I don't understand how this literacy has taken off so well. What is it? There's no criticism of it. There's no criticism of it at all <laughs> from any level. And I remember saying to him, it's because at every level, it's in everyone's interest to say it's going well. Right. Because above us all is an Ofsted, and anything right. you criticise from right. teacher level right up puts you at risk. So to right. nod your head and say, yeah, it's going fantastically well, was a very defensive position to be in, but one that, that saved you from apparent problems later well you know i think uh, i think that's a fair point and you know early on in the ontario strategy i i was uh, very concerned and very critical that that it would clone some of the worst parts of the of the british strategy you know the top down the fake results um uh, and all that and um after a few years uh, once we started to collect some data and not just had opinion or uh, prediction about about what might happen, uh, I remember a conversation between between Michael and I, and uh, and it was about the fact that you know he'd been very gung ho and I'd been very critical, and uh, and I said, um, so I've changed my mind now, Michael. Like, like so, so how do you think I've changed my mind? And uh, and he, he said he didn't know. Uh, why should he? So I said, well, the thing is, is through our research, we've discovered actually the literacy strategy is a really good strategy. Um, and that here, uh, teachers like it. Um, it's focused. It, it, it's, you know, it's not old-fashioned phonics uh, only, but but it, it's a balanced program. It, it gives them a lot of support. They've discovered actually they didn't know how to teach literacy as well as they thought they could. They've there's been a lot of interest in teaching and support for teachers and status of status of teachers, and um, and and it's not a compliance model. And so I've I've learned that the literacy strategy is okay. Um, and I've changed my mind on that. What I've not changed my mind on, and in fact, it's even worse, is that the testing strategy is horrendous. So the testing strategy that was taken from the UK is one that really caused all the things that happen in the UK. Uh, teachers focusing on the wrong kids uh, because that's where the results could go up quickly. So kids who were just near the passing mark you know, give them a bit of extra attention, extra time. Forget the other kids because they're not they're not going to get there this year. And, and a lot of that went on. And I think because of the back and forth between Michael and I, and eventually we became advisors together, um, Michael's view changed on the testing. So uh, he became an advocate with me uh, in in terms of really thinking quite differently about the testing. And, you know, when you're in this business uh, that Michael and I are in, when uh, in educational leadership, it, it's important to have both commitment and doubt, and and uh, which Graham Greene talked about, and uh, the author. And uh, commitment makes you passionate, makes you want to get things done. It motivates you. It gets you working with other people. Uh, doubt is about not always having all all the answers perpetually uh, about the best way to go about things. 
and uh, good policymakers, good researchers, good advisors uh, work with some kind of combination, I think, of commitments and doubt. Andy, how, how crucial, I'm really interested in, in, the, in the retired uh, directors who, who formed a sort of communication hub because yeah. I think that bit is missing in a lot of strategies that we do. Some some people with experience, but not trying to push a particular way of doing things, just connecting. Yeah, I, th- I think what we often get, you know, when Scotland has them at the moment with the regional improvement collaboratives, uh, which, frankly, I was part of uh, setting up as an advisor in Scotland, and uh, there's been some criticism, uh, which is fair, about how those are operating. And I think the difficulty with them when the local authorities work together is in some cases, not all. It, it just becomes another bunch of meetings between all the people at, at the top. And um, when they've appointed someone to coordinate them, um, it, it's usually been a full-time appointment. So uh, like the old-fashioned challenge advisor we had in the UK, they've got challenge advisors in Scotland. They're there to support you, nudge you, push you, push you a bit. And uh, I, th- I think that that tends in some ways to reinforce the top-down model because somebody's yeah. job depends yeah. on it. If, if you get a group of people who know what they're doing uh, and have been in the game for a long time and they're... Um, and they're working as a team, which means, again, they're committed, but they don't always completely agree initially on how to go about it. They're respected by people uh, in the system, but they're not in fear of their jobs. You know, I'm an international education advisor. If they don't like my advice, they can fire me. And uh, that's all right. I'll go on to something else because there's always somebody there who does. And um, and and so having a group of people who've... Uh, Who've, who've done the work, share the values, work as a team, they actually don't usually want to be paid a lot. Like the, the money's not, not the big thing. Uh, the, the, they want to do the work and they want to continue to make a difference. And I, I think you're right. I think that, and, and they're sort of semi-independent. Mm. Uh, they just want the best for the kids and, and for the teachers. And it's a good model, I think. Yeah, I've, I've just seen when we've done in strategies in various local authorities, that seems to be the bit that's missing. The the kind of, as you described it, the expert who doesn't, who wants to share views and connect people, but but isn't isn't concerned whether they, they take not if they take it on or don't take it. I don't mean that, but but doesn't feel as though their job's dependent on them. So it's it's a take it or leave it advice or link up. Well, I, I do this in Blackpool. I do this. I think you've described the job that I do in Blackpool, Andy. <laughs> so for three days a month, I, I get paid. It's not a massive amount. Um, but actually, I am an independent chair of a board that brings everybody together. And and it, the, the purpose of that is to ensure that we, we don't have outliers, that everybody is contributing you know, to the to the good of Blackpool. Um and and in a way, there's a there's a top there's a story developing in the UK at the moment, and we won't go into the detail of it about particularly a high performing and and sort of well known uh, free school. And uh, uh, Mel Ainsco, who you know reasonably well, I think, has oh. tweeted, tweeted something today just to draw our attention to the dangers of an autonomous school. Mm-hmm. And uh, in, and in a way, I'm, so I, th- I think a lot of the messaging that you've conveyed within your book is around 
um, that uh, ability to connect people together and for there to be a mechanism for that to happen. Now, that has to work both ways. Doesn't it? You do need to have somebody who can lean on you to say, you know, to have yeah. that honest discussion and say, you you really are an outlier here. You're not con- you're no, not contributing no. to the greater good, you know. But also just to remind everybody about the, well, that is the reason why we're doing it, and uh, it's for the benefit of Burnley or Blackpool. Or and I, I think something Perfect. that's in Andy's book as well is not just connecting people up who think the same. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's redundant. If everyone thinks the same in the community well, meeting, they might as well not be there. Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. well uh, no, Michael Fulham once said uh, uh, probably more than once. Uh, if there's two of us in the same room and we agree on everything, one of us is irrelevant. <laughs> Stan, which one of us is the irrelevant one? <laughs> It'll be me, probably. <laughs> I mean, Stan, you uh, you drew attention to the final section of the, of Andy's book, the epilogue. Yeah. I, what, what I said to Frank before we, we came on air was uh, whenever we meet, and and we, we have met frequently over the last 20 years or so, I always come away with something that, that's inspirational. And usually when I come home, after, if we've been out for a, a meal or something, Jill always says, I can tell that when you've been talking to Andy Hargreaves, you, co- you come back sort of bouncing. And in the book, it was, I mean, it was the last chapter, the the, leadership, the, the little bit on, on lead for good in the yeah. epilogue. That was, I thought, was really inspirational. But the other thing that made me really think, and I'm amazed I've never noticed it, is, uh, I can't remember which section it's in, it's where it talks about the language that we use as being industrial language. And and, and it it was, that was like hitting me like a bolt because you just think, I've never put that together, that that it is all industrial. And yet I've spoken before about, you know, the word manager, which comes from, hands-on and governor comes from a, a, a mechanical so those are all industrial terms but i never yeah, realized just how much you know, levels tiers scaling <laughs> up driving delivery and 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 what i can't what really gets to me is like you know women in policy and and women leaders take on this language of <laughs> of driving delivery levels and so on and you know, in life, if if we speak other people's language, it is disempowering, mm. and, and it disconnects us with with who we are. But we often don't think about the language that we're speaking. Mm. It's just there, you know. And so we we take it. And um, so for years, I've been saying this, and uh, but I've never really written it down. And uh, Ken Robinson, uh, in one of his last books before, sadly, he left us, uh, talked about agricultural metaphors versus organic metaphors. And agricultural metaphors were were a bit like, you know, Russian collectivist farming, which is production (laughs) targets are going up every year, basically. And, uh, you know, organic metaphors are more... um, in tune with who we need to be as a planet and as a species, they're they're networked, they're interconnected, um, they connect mind and body. So when we think of the middle, then you know it's not not just a level or a or a tier. It is um, it's the spine, the soul, uh, 
mm. the heart, the guts. Now you can carry it too far, you know, the spleen, the liver. Um, <laughs> Let's so, stop there before yeah, we yeah, get into all, other areas. All, all metaphors have their limits. <laughs> um, but but it, 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 it gets you, I think, to, to approach your own leadership in a more grounded, spiritual, connected way, rather than just to be another bolt or lever. And lever is another term we use yes. yeah. within, within the system. Well, one of the things... Uh... I just want to sort of get on to a new book that's going to be published in two weeks. But before we do, you're coming over to the UK in January, I believe. I am indeed. So um, I'll be uh, at a conference, first of all, in uh, in Ireland uh, for a week, an organisation I was president of uh, a few years ago. We'll have about a thousand people there. Um, they, uh, and then from, I think it's January the 15th to about the 23rd, uh, through the Association of Education Advisors, who, you know, very kindly have uh, put this together, um, I'll be going through working around, um, this book and also a, a new book with my colleague, Dennis Shirley on, uh, identity that we can talk about in a few minutes. And uh, it's a bit of a whistle-stop tour, but but it, they're not just speeches, but they're engagements and interactions with uh, other leaders in uh, Belfast, Edinburgh, Newcastle, Cardiff, and London. Brilliant, brilliant. Well, um, it's great to have you back over here. I know that, uh, um, yeah, uh, th- just to say that book, the new book, um, The Age of Identity, just give us... Uh, a little insight into what you and Dennis have uh, produced there. Well, the, the edge of identity in some ways comes out of the same work. So so uh, we, in the second period of our work with Ontario districts, the, the policy agenda was very much around uh, two of the four pillars were around equity understood as inclusion, that, that um it's hard to achieve unless you feel included within the school and that connects with well-being as well as uh, achievement and one of the big things they felt in including the premier equivalent to the governor or the prime minister right at the top um was the big part of inclusion was identity and and uh, if you didn't know who you were or couldn't see yourself in the school or had to hide who you were it's it's extremely hard to be successful and uh, so over the last uh, three years, uh, Dennis Shirley and I have written three books that come out of that, that work, one on student engagement, one on, uh, uh, not I should say pupil engagement, so yeah. <laughs> students here, students are five years old here. <laughs> um, and um, so pupil engagement, uh, pupil well-being, and uh, there you there go, and, um, and pupil identity, and you know, I'll be quite honest with you, given the firestorms that are around identity at the moment, thanks, uh, Stan, keep them coming. Uh, <laughs> they, you know, like huge firestorms around identity. We and we actually spent a year not writing this book. We, we thought, who are we as two old white cisgender men to write a book about identity? Um, uh, uh, and for a year, we stalled on it, to, to be honest, because of that. And, and then... And then eventually we came to the conclusion, well, you know, the, the, the reason we're writing about this is not because it's hot and controversial, so, hey, we'll write something about this, but 
But we've worked collaboratively with schools. It's their agenda, not ours. Our, our job is to listen to them, to watch them, to see what we learn, and to read stuff. Because as professors, best job in the world, we're paid to read stuff. We're actually paid to read stuff and, and make sense of it. So we read very contemporary stuff around identity politics, and we've read traditional uh, stuff around the development of identity. So the result of the book is it's not just about our research, but but it, it's a book that tries to it's a book that tries to help us get through in a world where really what we need is inclusion. What we're experiencing is is indignation of of uh, different groups against against each other. Um, we can see uh, many of these. You know, the white working class against people who are about cultural inclusive diversity. Transgender activists against uh, traditional traditional feminists. Um, Hamas against Israel and all, all the ways yeah. that's playing out through anti-Semitism and Islamophobia. And uh, so and we could go on and on uh, about these, but but where people are fighting each other around identity issues rather than seeing uh, the, the differences of identity as, as a resource that can bring people together and, and where it's difficult, and it sometimes is, uh, because many of our communities now don't have a single identity. I think it's around eight percent of eight to ten percent of families in the UK are mixed race. There is no single category for them. I have five grandchildren who are mixed race. They none of them look like each other, and uh, and there's no box to tick. There's no specific curriculum. Uh, they tend not to have anybody who looks like them uh, 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 appear in books. Um, and so, what we're basically saying is about five things. Um, could be six, but we'll see. First is. First is identity is not about them. It's about all of us. Um, identity matters for everyone. I go all around the world and people say, what you're doing here, as Dennis and I say, we're writing a book about identity. Um, you know, whether it's uh, whether it's a hairdresser, a taxi driver, a person in the hotel, a person in the restaurant, a random person on the street, nobody regards that as an uninteresting question. Mm. Uh, identity is is one of the most important things about being human. And, and one of the things that's biggest on the bandwidth right right now. So it matters for all of us. It is every educator's responsibility, every educator's responsibility, not just to develop uh, their young people's achievements, but also to develop their sense of who they are and what, they, what they're part of and what they belong to. And, and that is what we lost during the pandemic. And teenagers lost that more than anybody else. Yes. It was just stripped away from them because they didn't have those rules. And in part, that's why we're seeing huge mental health problems still, random acts of violence, uh, be, because we've forgotten how to how to be together. And then we talk about how identities are quite complicated and, and can be in a joyous way. So, so the rap star Drake is black. But he's also Jewish. He he also started from the bottom, and my whole team effing here as he as he sings. 
Um, he's an advocate for the Toronto area code because he's one of the first Canadians who didn't have to go to America to make it big in the entertainment industry. Drake is complicated. You can't just, if he were in your class, you couldn't just respond to him because he was black or because he was Jewish. You'd have to know the whole of who Drake is. But in our lives and in our schools, we've got this hyper-focus now on singularizing people's identities Mm. Um, and and that's an insult to people's dignity whether we see people only as black only as disabled only as privileged only as an immigrant is is an insult to their identity and their dignity because what we see with people isn't what we get and so there are two things that come out of that at the end I think I've gone through three and uh, and and they are Actually, there's three. One is, one is nobody should, ha- you know, unless you're Lord Lucan or John Stonehouse, nobody should have to hide who they are. Yeah. Right? Nobody. Everybody needs to bring the fullness of who they are into school in terms of their 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 gender, their race, their social class, or other things they are. You know, whether they're a twin or whether a teacher is a cancer survivor, or everybody needs to bring the fullness of of uh of who they are um we we need um a whole school to respond to the to the whole child and that fullness no no teacher can know everything about everybody it's us together who have to be able who have to be able to to do that um when we do that we will we will you know a narrative that we've seen our schools use in ontario that we need to get hold of more is what's essential for some kids is good for all kids usually. So, so it's not just about having something for them learning on the land for indigenous kids or sitting in a circle is good for everybody. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, if you get better toilets for kids who are fluid um, or non-binary then you get better toilets for everybody. Yeah. So yeah. schools become more like British Airways. Uh, well, at least in terms, of, not in terms of being on time, but at least in terms of, <laughs> at least at least in terms of what what the toilets look like. If if we have a better approach to welcoming immigrants, and and the evidence in Britain now, by the way, is is that more people are in support of uh, immigrants making a positive contribution. Yes to British society than against it. So everything's moving in that direction. If if you do that in your school, you're also more welcoming to the kid who comes from the other school or, or the kid who's come from primary to secondary school or, or, or the kid who's come from another town or the kid who was one parent and now is with another parent. So they've, they've had to switch schools. So, so develop this disposition of welcoming our immigrants and we develop a disposition of welcome. So we need a new narrative about identity. That what's that's essential for some kids is good for all kids. Not we need this for them and this for them, and we come into hermetically sealed groups. And then when things get difficult, when we're dealing with communities who are privileged in some ways and oppressed in others, and uh, most of us are kind of a mixture of that in in, in a way. The, the, we need to not run away from it mm. as leaders. We need not to hide the the difficult issues. How, how do we deal with um, 
how do we respect religious faith and integrity when that rubs up against, for example, patriarchal values? How, how do we? And the answer is, is we don't run away from that. We find a way to talk about it. But as our book sets out, you, you need some protocols and you need some guiding principles to which we all agree on before we get started. Yes. So, so that we don't just start tearing into each other and uh, and it all ends in tears. So, I mean, basically, that the 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 book is neither left nor right, uh, and it's not in the middle. It's not a compromise. It's not <laughs> it is. It's sort of between them up and off of it. Is is what the book is to try and get us into a space where we're learning how to be, and even more importantly, we're learning how to live together. Mm. Well, people want that, don't they, Andy? Pe- people want to know about you. Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll guarantee if you go on holiday or you meet somebody, for, the first question is, where are you from? Yeah. It's... And then the second question is, what do you do? Yeah. And, and, and both these are huge parts of our identity. They are. Yeah. yeah. Do you know, I, I feel as though um, I, I don't want to say too much about this book because I know if we store some of it up we'll get Andy back for another chat so uh, <laughs> uh what I want to do Andy is uh just thank you for your time today and okay. also if I may say on behalf of a guy a head teacher in Blackpool called Mark Kilmurray he I met him in a um a hotel a couple of weeks ago we're at a conference and uh, he said to me the most influential person I heard speak to me as I was on my leadership journey was uh, a guy called Andy Hargreaves. And I was able to say to him, well, actually, in a couple of weeks, I'm fortunate to have him as a as a guest on the Frankenstein chat. I know that Mark would be absolutely so chuffed that I've mentioned his name and raised it with you. So uh, I'm going to leave right. it. Can I, just, can I just, some somebody who's just started following us, I think, is a, an old friend of mine. And she's actually responsible for me meeting Andy in the first place. It's uh, a lady called Anne Waterhouse, and she oh, put yeah. the work. No, no, um, yeah, 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 she put the work together that that brought Andy across to do. I think it was something on self evaluation, and then we came across to Boston to uh, your yeah. conference. So um, I know Anne, Anne is is watching these now, and I'd like to thank her for for a, a friendship that she created for me that's that's lasted twenty years now. Well, can I thank you, Andy, for your time. Thank you, Stan, again. And uh, all being well, we'll be back uh, next week uh, with another guest. So thank you very much. Thanks, Andy.